0: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul moves on from Athens and comes to the city of Corinth. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. The title of the message is, Courage to Continue.
1: Acts chapter 18. Well, at this point in the book of Acts, we have seen that Paul has been chased from town to town thus far into his foray into Europe. And the one place where they didn't run him out of town, uh, last week as we finished up Athens, there were very few who believed. And, and if there was ever a moment to be discouraged, uh, this was it. Um, at this point in, in the missionary trip, this was it. Paul describes his emotions when he entered Corinth alone. We saw that in our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 3 where he says I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's how he was with them when he first arrived at Corinth. He was discouraged. And from a, a human perspective, it would it would seem like Paul was the least ready <laughs> to be used of God here, that anyone else might have been more ready at this point because of his mindset. But thankfully, in our weakness, God's strength is perfected, and Jesus is always working, right? That's the whole theme of Acts, right? That he's still working. And so as we see the Lord encourage Paul in his frustration and fear in the midst of that, may we be like him and have courage to continue in the things that God has called us to do as well. So Acts chapter 18, starting in verse one. Now, after these things, that's after Athens, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. And he came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. For by their occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So here we find Paul and now his next setting, the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. That's that whole area of what we would know as most of modern day Greece. And the city of Corinth controlled the Ithmus there between mainland Greece and the Peloponnesus. And the city, the city was—it's kind of cool. You look at some pictures; it, it almost looks surreal. Um, it was founded at the base of the Acrocorinth, this massive natural rock wall that protected the rear of the city. On the front end of the city, you had two harbors that would be on each side of the, the isthmus there, and then this massive rock wall was kind of like a like a, a backboard to the city, to, so that you can only be attack it from either the the harbor, or you'd had to, you had to—you would never be able to climb over this thing. And by the time the Romans had conquered Corinth, they had turned that actual rock wall into a a citadel, a fortress. They had built a fortress on top of it, making it even more formidable. The city would sprawl there below this protection with a population of almost 700,000 people during Paul's time. And while there are many temples in Corinth, Aphrodite was the most venerated deity. And I hope I don't have to go into what she was all about. The summit of the Acre-Corinth contained her temple, served by over a thousand sacred prostitutes that would go into the city at night. It had a renowned reputation for luxury, indulgence, and vice. Corinth's reputation for moral degradation eclipsed even Rome's. You hear the phrase, when in Rome, right? Well, Rome had nothing on Corinth. In fact, people, when you saw wayward youth kind of going astray, getting into trouble, you know, they would say, oh, he's Corinthianizing. He's becoming a Corinthian because it was so bad. It is of note that Paul probably wrote the book of Romans from Corinth. Now read Romans chapter one in light of that. That whole section where Paul talks about the downgrade of humanity, where where God gave them over to unseemly desires because they wouldn't listen to the truth they had. He's looking at it every single day, you know, as he's he's writing that. He's been seeing all these things, the, the reprobate mind. This monumental task of reaching this massive city for Jesus weighed heavily upon Paul. And in his discouraged state, it would have been very easy to see the size of the task and to quit. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave him alone in this discouraged state. He gives him some friends. For it says there that while he was in Corinth in verse 2, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, that was an area of Asia Minor, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So they were new to the city too. And the reason why they were new to the city is because Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. Now, the language implies here that he found this beautiful couple right after entering the city. He found them right after he entered into Corinth. So there was not this big, huge time where he was alone. He, he bumped into them and, and heard about them. And, and we don't know if they were believers before they met Paul, but they become some of the most important people on his ministry team from this time forward. Now, why are they newly here instead of at Rome where they had been? Well, the Emperor Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart. He had expelled them from Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius said that in 49 AD, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were in a state of constant tumult at the instigation of this guy named Christus. Now, if that sounds familiar, <laughs> it's because that refers to our Lord, the Christ. Remember these guys are ignorant pagans at the time. They don't know all this stuff yet. We know from Paul's letter to the Romans that there was a solid church in Rome at this time. And so since there have been riots instigated by the Jews in most cities where Paul preached at, should it surprise us that the same thing was happening at Rome? For the church was there and they're reaching people. We know they had a Jewish population because Paul addresses them in the book of Romans. And so it. Probably the same thing happened. These riots started to occur as they would accuse Christians of sedition and breaking laws. And so Claudius expelled all Jewish people from Rome. And so that's why they're here. And so Paul came unto them. The word there means he sought an association with them, most likely a business one, because as we'll see in a moment, they share the same trade. So you've got these two individuals. One is coming because they've been kicked out of their homeland, kicked out of their home, I should say. And then you've got another one who's coming in discouraged because... Things just don't seem to be going so well. And God puts those two people, three people together. And you know, this shows us that God sometimes, and often in fact, uses trying circumstances in our lives to move us to do things we would never normally do on our own. They probably would have never gone to Corinth. They probably would have stayed in Rome. And this expelling must have been difficult for Aquila and Priscilla, but it also brought them and Paul together. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond when God allows trying circumstances into your life? Do you lose heart or do you get back to work? Well, verse 3 says, and because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. So they started, they went into business together and he, he lived with them. For by their occupation, they were tent makers. Now, these were portable tents made of leather or goat's hair used by shepherds and travelers. They were very popular, but it was poorly paid work. Um, These were not the nice tents that, you know, would be used by royalty or anything like that. You would not probably go into the Mall of Millennia and find any of these on sale. Now, you might be saying, well, how did Paul learn to be a tent maker? You know, since Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel for rabbinical teaching, where did he learn this trade? Well, Rabbi Judah, another famous rabbi during that day, he said this, he that teaches not his son a trade does the same as if he taught him to be a thief. And so even rabbis in training always learned a trade. And this was what Paul learned to do. Now, during the week, Paul would work with them. And then on Saturday, he would share Jesus at the synagogue, as we see in verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greek. Now, the synagogue in Corinth has been unearthed in excavations. It was a large structure uh, since over 20,000 Jews lived in Corinth. And this would have been the largest Jewish audience that Paul had since his days back in Jerusalem. And so it says that every Saturday, every Sabbath, he would go there and he would minister to these guys and reason with them. Again, that's his normal way. He would reason with them. He'd preach to them through that dialogue technique. He would share with them and ask a few questions. They would give their feedback and then he'd reason with them some more. And so week after week, he's trying to persuade them and convince both the Jews and the Greeks, those would be those God-fearing Gentiles who had an interest in the Lord. And, and he's doing this until he gets a boost when Timothy and Silas finally arrive from where he had left them. Verse five. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and he testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ or that he, he is the Messiah. Now, why was their arrival so important? Why, why does it mark this as being a big deal? Well, the first thing we know from other passages in scripture is that they brought great news from the cities he'd left. Remember, Paul had to leave town because his life was in danger, but he had left you know, Timothy in one place. He left Silas, I believe, in Berea. He left Timothy in Thessalonica. And before that, he had left somebody at Philippi, I think Luke at Philippi. And so as his team was being left behind and Paul was on his own, you know, he doesn't know how things are going. And so when they come back, they bring news that the churches were healthy and growing in their faith and Regards to the church of Thessalonica and First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. You can jot this down to read on your own time. But he says, Now when Timothy came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and love, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you, he says, we were comforted in all our affliction and distress. So Paul gets news that things are going well. The church in Thessalonica is thriving. The church in Berea is thriving. They miss you. They want to see you more. They want to learn more. And they're telling people about Jesus. And then that was like the boost that Paul needed. But there was one other thing that really helped Paul a lot. They also brought financial gifts from those churches so that Paul no longer had to work as much to supply his needs writing to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 9 he references what a lift this was to him he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 9 he says and when i was present with you the church at corinth and was lacking, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome to you in other words, he didn't take a salary from them because he he had, he just didn't want them to think he was after the money but then when this his team came they brought this offering from all the Macedonian churches, the ones a little bit more of the north it, it gave him renewed time to devote to studying the word and to preaching it and it mentions here that Paul, in light of this situation it says is that when they came, he was pressed in the spirit. Now, that's a bad translation. If you have a different Bible other than the King James, it might say something like constrained by the word or pressed by the word. Paul was always willing to serve a congregation while working his trade, but it did keep him from doing his best at ministering in the word. That's why in Acts chapter 6, the apostles raised up deacons. Remember, they had the situation where the widows were complaining about the food distribution. And so the apostles said, it's not right for us to leave the word of God in prayer to serve tables. They said, we need to raise up some other people who can be responsible for this so we can focus on the task that's at hand. They didn't feel like it was the best use of their time to leave the studying and preaching and praying through God's word to do this. And so they raised up other people. The primary job of a pastor is to teach the word of God, whether it's through counseling or one-on-one discipleship or small group discipleship or pulpit ministry. He will be at his best if he's able to have the time to really devote to seeking God's face and hearing his voice, studying the word and accurately giving it to the congregation. Now, Peter, of course, counterbalances this truth by saying that the pastor should never be in it for greedy gain, right? First Peter chapter five verse two. He, he says to those elders that are among you, you don't. You're not in this for filthy lucre. I, that's why I like the King James. Where else will you hear words like filthy lucre? You know, you know. I, I don't. You know, talk to my sons about you know saving money and saying, be careful, beware of the you know the danger of filthy lucre. You know, Is that a new video game. You know, it's a new boss. If you feel the Lord has called you to a teaching ministry, never look down on working with your hands. Never Paul did it often, but I will say this i've I've been a pastor now for almost nineteen years, and of those nineteen years, eight of those years have been spent as a full- time pastor, and you know eleven of those years were spent being bivocational and It's a huge blessing to be free to give all of your work energy to ministering God's word to his people. It's a huge blessing, and that's why the Bible says you know if You know, if there's those that labor in the word, they're worthy of double honor. It says, you know, to support those who labor in the word among you. There are those who refuse to give to the church because of failed ministers who took advantage of Christians who were a greedy gain. They were after money. But you know, that doesn't negate the truth. Paul, when talking to the Corinthians and mentioning to them about giving, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 through 14, he says to them, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? In other words, you know, you you pay for services at other places. He's like, you know, if we're, we're serving you, shouldn't we be supported when we do it? Nevertheless, he says, we have not used this power, but we suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. He's saying that when you were a priest, you would serve at the altar and you would get a, a part of the offering so you could have dinner. Even so, as the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And if it's at all possible, that's the way it should be. And, and I always say that because, you know, and I hate talking about this topic. How many times have you tried to share the gospel with somebody and they say, oh, those churches are just after money, right? I hate talking about this topic because I never want that to be any way I would be thought. But The Bible commands us to give faithfully, to support the church where you are saying, that's my home church. if This isn't your home church yet. I'm not talking to you. But if this is your home church, you should support it financially. You should give faithfully. What should I give? Whatever you can give with a cheerful heart. Whatever the Lord puts in your heart, you do it obediently and you do it faithfully unto him. Well, Paul's extra time in the word now and this greater availability to preach, it stirred him to really press home his argument that Jesus is the Messiah, calling them to respond. But as in other cities, this did not go so well. Verse 6, back in Acts 18. And when they opposed themselves, that's kind of a weird phrase. Uh, You know, uh, Paul used that phrase when he spoke to Timothy about being patient and ministering to those who oppose themselves. The word there means to organize a resistance. You ever done that with God? You organize your own little resistance, you know? The Lord's tugging on your heart, and you're like, I'm not doing that, God. You know, if I do that, God, you know what's going to happen? And you, you organize a resistance in your heart. They were organizing a resistance against Paul here, and it says they blasphemed. Now, they weren't blaspheming God, But when this word is used towards men, it means to insult or slander. They started to say negative things about Paul, trying to discredit his ministry, trying to discredit his message. And just like all the other cities before Athens, the same thing goes here. They begin to oppose him. And at this point, though, Paul has had it. He's done. And so it says that he shook his raiment. It means he took his coat and he shook it out. The idea is if something's sitting there that that you shake it and it would just fall out and spill on the ground. And so he shook out his garment and he said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From this point, I'm going to the Gentiles. I get it. <laughs> I've been there, you know. You know, if you have kids, you've been there. I'm done. You know, <laughs> if, you know if, you, if you have work environments, you know, you, you've been there. I'm done. You know, I'm done. I'm done dealing with you people, you know. And Paul, he's just, he's afraid. We'll see that in a moment. He's frustrated. You know Nehemiah, this phrase to shake out your your raiment. Nehemiah did this when he found out his own people were extorting each other. They were extorting from one another, and and he confronted them about it. And they were convicted. They said, "We'll stop doing this." And Nehemiah's like, "You better." And he shook out his garment and he said, "God do." This is Nehemiah five thirteen, by the way. God do the same to any of you who go back on your word today. Yeah, Nehemiah Nehemiah was hardcore. He would take people dragging by their hair out of the temple when they weren't like doing what they're supposed to do. We're gonna start. Teaching our ushers how to. <laughs> it's a very visible sign of frustration. One, these Jews would recognize. They would know right away whoa, he's saying he's just given us over to God's judgment, basically. Paul, he says that. I'm clean. He says, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. The, the phrase there means to be ritually pure. And in this case, he's saying, I'm, I'm pure from your guilt. I'm pure from the guilt that you've rejected your own Messiah. It's like saying, this is all on you. I've done my job. I'm finished. Now, while that's technically true, (laughs) is this probably the best way to approach reaching the lost like a job? Sometimes we do. And that's not the best way to approach it. But like I said, Paul's afraid. I mean, think about it. He's been beaten. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been chased all over southeastern Europe all by the very people that he intensely loved and just wanted to see come to Christ more than anybody else. Paul in Romans will say, I would wish myself accursed if it meant that all Israel would be saved. I don't know if I love people that much. That's heavy. I'll go to hell so that it means you all would be saved. Hmm. You know, I wonder if his team kind of looked at each other with wide eyes as he storms out of the synagogue. You know, maybe Timothy even whispered, do you think he's serious? I mean, I just got circumcised, bro. (laughs) And he's quitting on our people. (laughs) Can I get a refund? But even in the midst of this, the Lord is working. For it says he departed from there. He left the synagogue and he entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God. And remember, that's a phrase. that means he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile, but a God-fearing Gentile who loves the Lord. And so he stays with this guy, Justice, and he leaves Aquila and Priscilla's home, and he takes up residence with a non-Jew who lived right next to the synagogue. (laughs) You see him come out every day. I wonder, I don't know how Paul was like, but I know what I'd be like. I'd be out there like with a pork shank and be like, hey, guys. Maybe not. But Paul was drawing a clear line. He's saying, you're either with Jesus or you're against him, pick your side. And some did. Look at here, verse 8, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now, Crispus was the synagogue leader. I mean, this is one of the most important and influential people in that community. And in him and his family, they put their faith in Jesus, and, and we know they're excommunicated just afterwards because we see he's not the synagogue leader and we're not gonna to get to the verses today, but we'll eventually get to it where we see another guy, Sosthenes, is now the synagogue leader. So they're excommunicated for doing this. And this is one of the few people that Paul personally baptized in Corinth. He makes mention, it says, I only baptized you know, these three guys and their families, uh, but Timothy and Silas did the rest of the baptisms and whatnot. But as a small little revival starts on this very day that he walks out, now, there's a temptation to say, well, I guess maybe what Paul did worked. You know, what's, what's wrong with Paul drawing a line in the sand? Don't people need to realize a choice must be made? That's true. But God's the one who draws those lines, not us. He's the one who draws those lines. And God's not even close to finishing the prep work in Corinth. And so in verse nine, it says, then spoke the Lord to Paul in the night vision. He said, be not afraid, but speak hold not your peace for I am with you and no man shall set on you to hurt you for I have much people in the city. Isn't that awesome? Paul isn't just thinking about quitting on the Jews. He's thinking about leaving. He's probably thinking, I don't feel like being stoned again. I really don't feel like being beaten again. I'll just move on. And the Lord comes. Now in a twisted sense, Paul's reaction kind of encourages me. It kind of encourages me because I've blown it so many times due to fear or worry or just being in the flesh. And to know that God still works in spite of me is a great encouragement to get those areas fixed and to get back to work. And the Lord's gracious words to Paul in the night remind us that God is in the business of cleaning up our messes, that he loves to use broken vessels, loves to use broken vessels. And so he comes to Paul and he says to him, be not afraid. Uh, literally, it means stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Now, in our language, that sounds a bit harsh, but what it means is it's going to be okay, Paul. You don't have to be afraid. Stop being afraid. You know, the Lord says, fear not 63 times in the Bible? 63 times he has to come to his people and say, fear not. 26 times he says, stop being afraid. You think we have a problem with fear or wanting to quit? <laughs> Fear is one of the greatest tools that the enemy uses to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. Experiencing the emotions of fear or wanting to quit doesn't mean you're odd. It doesn't mean you're not cut out for the task that God set in front of you. It means you're just like the rest of us. Just like the rest of us. You know, in James chapter five, don't me turn there real quick. James chapter five, verse 17. What's the name of the gentleman that's listed here? Who is it? Elijah. Elijah, man. I know Elijah. He's the guy that called down fire from heaven. I've never called down fire from heaven. I I hope any of you haven't. (laughs) Elijah, I mean, he's like the guy. I mean, he's the guy they still leave a seat for him, right? You know, an empty seat for Elijah just in case he returns. He's the one that's going to precede the coming of the Lord, right? Elijah. James five seventeen, Elijah was a man, subject to like passions as we are. Oh, Elijah is just like me? Just like you? Yeah. This has been In the
0: Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com in the Word. By a strong